Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, healthcare workers and EMTs have been called the frontline heroes of the pandemic. Behind the Mask is a new book about their experience from a perspective the rest of us will never see. Also this morning, it's a tax season like no other, and much of the help seniors depend on isn't available. What older Ohioans need to know with a filing deadline six weeks away. In our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, as the pandemic has exacerbated an already growing housing crisis, a new book explores the cause and effect. And in our ongoing Keeping the Faith series, the teachings of Jesus have been challenged through the ages. Is it possible to turn those who confront Christians over their beliefs from doubters into believers? This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, March 4th, 2021. WFIN News, I'm John Marshall. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast is calling for mostly sunny skies today and a high around 40. Partly cloudy tonight with a low 23. Findlay is having a corridor and safety study conducted on West Main Cross Street from Main Street to Interstate 75. City Engineer Brian Thomas on a few things the study will look at. You know, if you're headed out of town, there in front of Dietz is where it goes down from four lanes to two lanes. You know, people hitting the gas to try to hurry up and get around people before it gets down. You know, traffic backing up, especially during rush hours at Western Avenue intersection there with the stoplight. He says the city doesn't have any current changes planned for the corridor, but the study will help the city get ahead of any potential issues. Get more on the study on our website. An officer with the Ohio Department of Natural Resources who died helping others was remembered in a memorial service yesterday. Jason will be sorely missed. He regularly gave of himself to others and eventually made the ultimate sacrifice by losing his own life while trying to save someone else. Jason Lagore was laid to rest one week after dying during a search and rescue operation at Rocky Fork State Park in Highland County. The 15-year veteran was among those called to rescue a 16-year-old girl from an icy lake after she had just saved her brother from the freezing waters. We have information on our website about donating to the officer's family. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost is warning Ohioans about phone scams involving COVID-19 vaccines. We're calling up and saying for a one-time fee of $49.95, uh, you can get to the front of the line and get your vaccine. No, you can't. That's not a real thing. But they'll take your money and run, and you won't get any closer to the front of the line. Get more on the scam on our website. A statue honoring John Glenn has been installed at the Ohio State House. The famous Ohioan was the first American to orbit the Earth. Last week, a state panel voted to place the statue there for about a year. Rules for permanent placement of a statue on State House grounds state that the person depicted must have been dead at least 25 years. Glenn died in 2016 at the age of 95. I'm John Marshall with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Coming to you broadcasting this morning from the bunker, uh, from the home studio this morning. And here's the reason. Uh, I, I Absolutely truth, uh, truthful about this. God's honest truth. Uh, yesterday, I noticed that I needed, to, uh, I needed to fill up my tank. And yet I don't want to get gas right now because it, the price is too high. So I'm thinking if I can just not drive for the next couple of days, give the price of gas a chance to, to come down a little bit more, then I'll be okay. So I'm uh, broadcasting from home so I don't have to drive this morning. Honest truth, that's, that's what it is. Uh, today is the fourth day of March, Courageous Follower Day. 
Courageous Follower Day. I don't know. Uh, they're talking about that QAnon conspiracy that there might be a, a second insurrection at the Capitol today. I don't know that I would call those courageous followers. If indeed that happens, we'll have to wait and see. But it's Courageous Follower Day. Hug AGI Day today. It is also International GM's Day. So hug your general manager today. Even better if your general manager is a GI. International Scrapbooking Industry Day. It is Marching Music Day. National Dance the Waltz Day. National Grammar Day. National Pound Cake Day. National Snack Day. National Sons Day. Big salute to my sons this morning. And it is Toy Soldier Day today. So play Toy Soldiers with your sons today. And you get it. My sons are GIs too. So hey, that's we're. So there you go. Reasons to celebrate today. So this is uh, some of the one of the most buzzworthy stories. Certainly, people will be buzzing about this today. I saw this on the uh, Newswire. I thought this is going to cause quite a stir. The Washington football team apparently is not done remaking itself in an effort to be socially correct in the 21st century. They are now dropping their cheerleaders and replacing them with a co-ed dance team. Part of the team's efforts to rebrand. Former Laker girls manager Petra Pope, who also launched the Knicks City Dancers and redesigned the Nets Entertainment when they moved from New Jersey to Brooklyn, was hired yesterday as an advisor to overhaul the Washington football team performing group. She tells the AP, quote, I've been asked to create a more modern entertainment team that is inclusive and diverse. We just want to follow that mode of being more modern and a more modern franchise. The future dance team does not yet have a name. She said the previous cheerleaders would be uh, able to try out for the new dance team as long as they have that particular athletic skill set. So, no more cheerleaders for the Washington football team. They are just going, I think they should, I think I've got a name for the Washington football team. Moving forward, the Washington Wokes. I think that's what they need to be. Uh, let's see here. There was, um, what was it, a couple of months ago? Was it a couple of months ago? The uh, Yeah, it was back in, uh, back in December. A couple of months ago, the um, Christmas star in the night sky. Remember the confluence of the, the planets uh, to, they come together and they look like the brightest star in the sky, the Christmas star? Remember when we were talking about that? Apparently, if you missed it, uh, you have another confluence of planets to check out uh, this weekend the smallest and largest planets of the solar system will meet up friday morning mercury and jupiter will appear side by side in the sky in an astrological event called a conjunction this type of conjunction not particularly rare it is actually the second time this year that mercury and jupiter will be converging in the night sky Unlike the Christmas star, which was very rare, this is more common. To see it, you will need to look southeast about an hour before sunrise. The two will eventually fade away as the light from the sun brightens the sky, obviously. 
Saturn will also be glowing nearby, above the duo and off to the right. The event will be visible around the entire globe, but the placement of the planets will look slightly different for those sky-gazing from south of the equator. Uh, if uh, cloudy conditions obscure the uh, night sky on Friday, it says people can check out the event on Saturday and Sunday morning as well, as they will still be close to each other, but not as not as close as they will be on Friday. So if you miss the Christmas star, uh, this is kind of a, a second opportunity for that, which is kind of interesting. Uh, let's see here. And that's not the only show in the night sky. Uh, an asteroid nicknamed the God of Chaos will pass by Earth on Friday night. So while you're watching the confluence of Mercury and Jupiter, you can check this out. NASA says this asteroid is more than a thousand feet wide, traveling at a distance of about 10 million miles away. So it's not like it poses any risk or anything. The space, ro space rock was first discovered in 2004, will not be back until 2029, and then again in 2036. Researchers say this trip will help them predict odds of the asteroid hitting Earth when it returns in 2068. So, there you go, you watch for that. All kinds of stuff going on in the sky. And if you want to get an up-close and personal look at all of this, a Japanese billionaire is looking for eight volunteers to fly to the moon with him on Elon Musk's spaceship. Uh, it will take three days to get to the moon, loop behind it, and three days to get back, uh, according to a video posted by uh, Yasaku Maizawa. Uh, he posted this yesterday, and or Tuesday, I'm sorry, and he says he is looking for eight volunteers to go to the moon with him. He's already bought a seat on the spaceship, but apparently he doesn't want to go alone. So he will pay the entire journey. You don't have to foot the bill for a thing. If you've wanted to travel to space, but the price was a bit prohibitive, this Japanese billionaire will pay the entire way. Applications are due by March 14th. So you have 10 days to get your application in. Initial screenings will be starting soon after. Final interviews and medical checkups are scheduled to be completed by late May. The mission to fly around the moon and back is scheduled for 2023 on the SpaceX Starship. Uh, which, by the way, the vehicle that you would be traveling in is still in the early stages of testing. Elon Musk says he is confident it will be ready uh, for the trip in 2023. Although, it should be pointed out, the first two test flights have ended in explosive crash landings. So there is that. So, <laughs> that would be one risk, I guess. But if you are willing to take the risk, you could go on an all-expenses-paid trip to the moon and back. So, maybe you are not into a journey quite of that distance, but Qantas Airlines... Australia's official carrier is uh, offering something for travelers, I guess in an effort to encourage people to get back to flying again. Qantas is offering mystery flights uh, for a day trip to an unknown destination. Uh, the airline ran a similar promotion back in the 1990s where passengers would be put on a scheduled flight to any Qantas destination uh, for now, Australia's borders are likely to remain closed until next year, so the mystery flights will only head to domestic locations. 
Uh, tickets go on sale today for three flights departing Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne for points unknown. Passengers can track the flight path, but the destination will only be revealed upon descent. How about that? Fares started around $575. Airline hopes this will bring them a boost that is much needed as the tourism industry struggles amid international travel restrictions. I think that would be actually kind of cool. I don't... I think that would be actually kind of cool to do a mystery fly. I hope maybe an American carrier does that because I think that would be fun. Anyway, there you go. Some of the most interesting, most buzzworthy stories as we get your Thursday morning started. WFIN says thank you for listening. And remember, you can listen around the clock on computer, smartphone, or tablet. Start your day with Chris Oaks and good mornings. And stay with us all day long. You also get CBS Sports Radio plus all of our locally originated sports programming. Listen live whenever you like at 1330 WFIN, 95.5 FM, and at WFIN.com. Where you can also grab our free mobile apps for iOS or Android. Well, you know, frontline healthcare workers and first responders have been called the heroes of the pandemic, kind of the way the members of the military are considered heroes of the war on terror. But just like the military, it is hard to really appreciate the experience of being on the front lines unless you have actually been there. David Cochran is an emergency medical technician from Philadelphia whose new book, Behind the Mask, Untold Stories of EMS in a Pandemic, kind of gives the rest of us some sense of that experience. And David, much has been made about the fact that we have not seen a health crisis like this in our lifetime for more than a century. A year ago, when we first started to see these outbreaks of COVID-19, what did you expect going in as an EMT? Uh, well, let me just say thank you for having me on the show. And <clears throat> honestly, just as everyone, I had no idea what to expect. You know, I like to say there was never really a playbook on how to handle this pandemic. So EMS and first responders and everyone uh, had to kind of lean on each other to get through it. And so that's kind of why I wrote this book, to kind of share the experience in those unfiltered, horrific scenarios that we faced, especially towards the beginning of this outbreak, uh, to kind of give a greater sense and a greater appreciation for what EMS and first responders have been going through. As an EMT, obviously, you see a lot of pain and suffering, the aftermath of, a, uh, uh, of accidents uh, you've deployed to help treat victims of natural disasters like hurricanes. How does any of that compare to this, or does it compare? Yeah, you know, for natural disasters, it's usually a, co- a cookie-cutter response. You have a specific area where the disaster occurs, you set up a camp at a certain spot, and you go in and you treat who needs it. Here, it's widespread obviously across the entire world so it's very hard to pinpoint where exactly we're needed uh so in new york city we're there for 40 days when it was the epicenter uh and then we were in south texas again because they saw rises in the southern region of the state uh and then uh, other teams have been sent to minnesota california uh, uh, virginia all over the country Looking back uh, over the course of the uh, of the past year, what has been the most difficult thing to uh, deal with? I, I, there are so many things, I would imagine, uh, from the fact that in some cases, especially early on, there was just very little 
that you could do? I mean, I'm sure as emergency responders, your you know instinct is to want to come in and do something to alleviate pain and suffering and uh, get people help. And there was just so little of it to be found. Is that the most difficult part or what has been uh, the most challenging uh, part to kind of come to grips with over the past year? Yeah. So obviously we've had endless challenges throughout the year. Um, but the, the hardest thing that EMS has faced is this kind of ability to develop a cold sense of humor to kind of keep moving on, you know, so we don't lose track or focus on the patients that need us in the future. You know, throughout this past year, we've dealt with record high cardiac arrests, nearly 300 a day in New York City, with over 70% of them dying. Uh, we've dealt with record high suicides. And not only that, we can't see our loved ones after we deal with that because a lot of EMS is afraid to transmit anything they may have attained over their shift uh, or contracted over their shift. So people are sleeping in their cars for weeks on end. People are renting motels to, you know, quarantine for 14 days after their shifts. Mm -hmm. It's just, it just piles up. I I would imagine that also is uh, something that is unique and hard to prepare for because, uh, again, in your normal course of business, it would be uh, rather rare to uh, encounter something where uh, you would be worried about. Uh, the transmissibility. I mean, you respond to an accident victim. You don't worry about <laughs> picking up a broken leg from somebody else. Uh, so, you know, that is something that you don't normally have to deal with just right there. Right. Yeah. And and we do deal with, obviously we deal with illnesses. Um, so you always want to have precautionary like equipment uh, with masks and gloves and whatnot. But this is the first time we're really dealing with something where <laughs> it seems like the list is changing every day of what a new symptom is. So you really have no idea what you're dealing with when you're first going in there. You also point out, and I think this is uh, really important too, that it's not just cases of COVID-19 itself. Uh, It's all of the other things that come with it. You mentioned the cardiac cases, uh, depression and suicide. You know, these, you're not just dealing with the disease itself, but all that that brings with it. Right. Yep. And and that's uh, kind of uh, another part of the book is, you know, we have to keep in mind, yes, we've been hammered home with the virus, the virus, the virus, but EMS is doing way more than beyond this virus. And as you stated, all those examples, we've been dealing with a plethora of anything, even the day-to-day stuff like shooting, stabbings, fires. It, it, the, the virus is just another layer of that that we're dealing with. Uh, we mentioned that the first responders, EMS, healthcare workers, are kind of described as the heroes of this pandemic. Are you comfortable with that label, heroes of the pandemic? Not necessarily. I don't think anyone who is a true hero wants to be called a hero. That's not why we do it. And I even state in the book, it's kind of hard to view yourself as a hero when unfortunately we're forced to witness so much tragedy and death every day. Obviously we want to be there to help people in their lowest moments, but it it just, sometimes it's hard to think of yourself as a hero. Again, uh, we relate that to the way we think of the military in uh, the war on terror, any conflict and the fact that we can't really appreciate it unless we've been there. Uh, The other part of that with the military is so often you deal with the after effects, the PTSD and, and so on. You definitely think that there is some of that that is going to have to be dealt with amongst your peers when all of this is over. 
Unfortunately, yes. I've, I know countless uh, EMS members that have already enrolled themselves into therapy programs and have hired new therapists throughout the past couple months. Uh, just returning from New York City alone after those 40 days, uh, half of my strike team, about 12 people, so six people, uh, got therapists immediately after returning just to kind of have someone to open up to about what they were experiencing. One of the other things that maybe we haven't thought about yet and and may have to confront to uh, confront in the future is this something that is going to drive people out of the uh, of the the business out of this uh, this career i mean are we facing the possibility that when all of this is over some people will hang it up and we may have a, a shortage of emts moving forward uh, you know, potentially uh, EMS, uh, EMTs, medics, there is a lot of burnout in the field already yeah. to begin with. So this is obviously uh, going not going to help that, that scenario. And uh, again, that's why a greater appreciation is kind of needed to help refuel the, the batteries of these people, you know, to make them know that their work is meaningful and we need them out there on the streets. To that end, and, and with respect to uh, all of that that we're talking about and the impact of, of all of this on those uh, frontline workers, I know that a portion of uh, every book uh, sold is going to be donated in an effort to provide that support to first responders. Yes, so a portion of every book sold will be donated to the Firefighters and EMS Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, where... They put their donation towards medical assistance and needs for first responders who may need it, uh, whether it be a therapist or a illness or a physical trauma. They're there to help pay their bills and get them through these tough times. And, and so I also have a direct link to their website for those who may not want to buy the book, but donate directly to the foundation. They can do that as well. And in the meantime, what can the rest of us do to show our appreciation in kind of a tangible way? What can we do to make this burden a little bit easier for uh, our friends and neighbors who may be, uh, again, among those on the front lines of this pandemic? Yeah, just be respectful. Keep in mind that regardless of your views of the virus and the views of, of how it's being handled, you know, they're, they're doing a job and, and it's, it's been an exhausting job to say the least. They are, they're running on fumes. So a little bit of respect and just appreciation for when they show up at your doorstep to help you. David Cochran is an emergency medical technician from the Philadelphia area. His new book is Behind the Mask, Untold Stories of EMS in a Pandemic. Do you have a website where folks can learn more about the book? Yes, uh, you can get my books at www.davidscochran.com. You can also buy them directly through Amazon in paperback or ebook form. David, thanks very much for all you do, and uh, thanks very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you for having me on the show. Well, just like everything else, tax season has been thrown for a loop by the effects of the pandemic in 2020. And unfortunately, at the same time, much of the in-person help that seniors usually depend on isn't available because of the pandemic as well. So Margie Mannix, a digital editor-in-chief for AARP, with us this morning to share some tips and advice for seasoned citizens who may have some questions about filing this year. What are some of the uh, most common questions that taxpayers uh, have this season particularly? 
Well, one of those, um, yeah, we have some probably about four major questions that we are getting from older Americans. And one of those is a, is a perennial, but, you know, can I, is there free tax help out there for me? And of course, we get that a question a lot because we have the program, the AARP Foundation Tax Aid Program. Right. That, we are still running that program this year. Um, one caveat this year, because of, you know, COVID restrictions in various parts of the country and volunteer availability, we are asking people to book an appointment. But we do have several options. Um, you know, it used to be in person and it's still in person, but we also have virtual and we'll help coach, you know, through a sort of a sharing screen type process. Um, the IRS has a free file program for low income Americans. And on our website at aarp.org slash taxes, we've collated a lot of these places where people can go to f- get free tax help. So there is tax help out there. Yes. And we want to make sure that people, particularly older Americans, know that. Uh, now, the other, this is just one of the other wrinkles. There's, there's two biggies here that we'll talk about. One of them is we get a lot of questions about those economic stimulus payments. First, they want to know, are they taxable? Uh, no, they're not. Short answer, no, they're not taxable. But the, the wrinkle here is that some people, and I know that um, in Ohio, the IRS reports about 6 million people got stimulus payments, but across the country, we're hearing about 10% of people miss the stimulus payments. So, you know, that could be for many reasons. Um, yeah. It could be have been a snafu, or it could be, uh, unfortunately, that you lost your job. So maybe you didn't qualify for the first round, but you certainly did qualify for the second round. Mm-hmm. So how do you get that stimulus payment? Well, it's it has to do with your tax form. And I know people are just trying to like, going, oh, no. It, yes, it is making things complicated. But we want people to know that if you didn't get your stimulus payment, or you didn't get as much as you were entitled to, you can claim the missing stimulus money on your 2020 tax return. Yeah. Now, it's in the form of a credit, and that credit is called the recovery rebate credit. And it's very important that people are aware of this. There's a worksheet for this credit in the form 1040, as well as the, the special form for older Americans, which is called form 1040SR. And we really want to stress that if you are missing a payment or money that you are entitled to, you really need to claim that credit on there. And it's very important for older Americans who might be on limited incomes or anybody on a limited income, because depending upon your income and your other financial circumstances, not only will this credit reduce your taxes, but it may even produce a refund depending upon your income. Yeah. Are there uh, some other, uh, any other tax issues uh, that will affect older Americans in particular this year? Yeah, yeah, great question. And there's one that, that we're hearing from older Americans um, because of, of the pandemic and, and people who may have lost their jobs. You know, you, you might have somebody in their 60s who the first time in their lives has filed for unemployment benefits. And of course, this has been an incredible lifeline for so many struggling Americans. But it's a surprise to people who've, who've never collected these benefits before that they are indeed taxable. So that's something that people need to be aware of. And again, we've got some articles that cut through the clutter and walk people through this. We also want to remind people who are 65 plus that they, um, you know, there is a, an amount of money they can add to their deduction. You know, the standard deduction, say, for example, for individuals, which is $12,400 a year, if you're 65 plus, you can add about 16, 
1650 to that. So we walk through that on our website. We walk people through that. They need to take advantage of this. Okay. And there, there are things out there that can help them. Yes. Uh, so again, uh, those uh, things applying specifically to seniors and for everyone, the stimulus is not payment, un, uh, is yes. not taxable. Unemployment is. So things to keep in mind. The other thing that we have heard uh, is that this year in particular, the number of tax frauds and tax scams is at an all-time high. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, I, I. I I have been covering and writing about monitoring frauds and scams for a year, and it just—I'm just continually horrified and shocked by what these scamsters do. So we're seeing two things uh, ratchet up in two things this year. One is a perennial one, where people are pretending that they're from the IRS and they are calling you. And this has happened to my mother recently. They're calling you and saying that you owe back taxes, and if you don't pay those back taxes right away, we're going to arrest you. I called my mom down, said, "No, mom, no, no, no." First of all, you don't owe back taxes. And second of all, if you did, they would send you a letter. They would not call and threaten to arrest you. Right. Now, so that's, we're seeing more increases in that. The other thing that is different this year that we're seeing is that, you know, we talked about those unemployment benefits, which have been such a great help to so many Americans in financial duress uh, during the pandemic. There are people, identity thieves, who are applying for unemployment benefits in other people's names. Yeah. And the people people only find out about it when they get the IRS form in the mail it's called a 1099G that says this is how much money you've collected in unemployment benefits. I mean, oh my gosh, what a what a horrible horrible thing to do. I mean, this is and we just want to make sure that people are aware of scams, that they're on guard for them. You know, remind people right. like I I I, I'm not kidding you. I remind my mother once a week not to give out her social security number to anybody. Mm-hmm. So people really I, need to be aware of these. Yeah, again, they're always out there, but especially this year, they are particularly prevalent and particularly nasty, uh, unfortunately. Uh, as we mentioned at the outset, uh, the uh, in-person help, the uh, resources uh, for older Americans to help with filing your taxes uh, is out there even in person, but it's a little tougher to find this year. So how do we get uh, other forms of, of help? What else is out there if we don't have an in-person uh, uh, clinic or uh, in-person uh, tax help available? Well, the tax aid program does have some um, self-service help as well as some virtual help. Um, There's the IRS uh, free file program, which is electronic. Uh, If you go to our website at ARP.org slash taxes, we actually have an article that says find free tax help near you. So we have a list of all the places that you can take advantage of um, on our website. We do explain how the tax aid program works. So there are a number of places where people can go. Uh, particularly older Americans on limited income and those with low incomes. There, there is free tax help out there, and right. people are very respectful of of COVID safety. So there, there's a number of places and a number of things you can do. Very good. Six weeks exactly until deadline day. Margie Mannix, again, digital editor-in-chief for AARP this morning. We'll link up to those resources on our webpage. Margie, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Chris. Enjoyed it. Now to our Throwback Thursday segment this morning. You know, once upon a time, the affordable single-family home was considered the hallmark of American prosperity. 
These days, however, the cost of a decent home has risen to the point that it is all but unattainable for many young adults and families. Even rental expenses are becoming unaffordable as well. While the problem is at its worst in big cities, we even see it in our community. And now the pandemic is exacerbating the problem even further with record low mortgage rates and tight inventories pushing housing prices even higher. Nowhere is the modern housing crisis more acute than in the San Francisco Bay Area. Connor Doherty is an economics reporter at the New York Times. And last February, we spoke to him about his examination of the cause and effect of the housing crunch in the highly acclaimed book, Golden Gates, The Housing Crisis and a Reckoning for the American Dream. It is today's Throwback Thursday. You probably could have picked any community, large or small, to explore all the factors at play here. Why use the most extreme case? Uh, well, I'm from the Bay Area, so and I live in Oakland, so that's huge because this story is very narrative-driven. It's really about people confronting this problem. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to really get to know people and watch them over a period of years, uh, which I did, um, you're going to have to be close to them. Uh, you can't really phone this one in. Yeah. So um, that was a huge piece of it. But also, there has for you know many, many, many decades in this in this country been this kind of frame, uh, and maybe sometimes it's a little overdone, but that California is kind of a glimpse of the nation's future, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, between technology and other different kinds of things, uh, that has you know generally been true. And so, um, I believe that that generally optimistic story of California being a uh, glimpse of the nation's future is now a very pessimistic, almost cautionary tale type story. Right. And so, uh, watching, uh, so using the the kind of worst situation seemed like a good frame. I should note that while California is the absolute worst manifestation of this uh, crisis, uh, as we have started to see solutions pop up, many of the leader, much of the leadership has come from the Midwest, uh, particularly Minneapolis, which has addressed, uh, has done all sorts of very innovative housing things and has people from all around the country calling them to sort of ask why and how they've implemented some of the things they've done. So... In a weird way, uh, as much as it, it pains me to see my home state in such trouble, it is at least ha- nice to see that maybe we're uh, yeah. giving people a good, uh, a good example of what not to do. You know, it's, it's interesting because this is a, a crisis that has developed relatively recently. I mean, even adjusted for inflation, the median value of a home in the U.S. as recently as 1990 was, I think, just over $100,000 according to the U.S. Census Bureau. So, you know, this has exploded relatively quickly. Why? Well, as I say in the book, everything went wrong at once. (laughs) Um, First, we had the Great Recession, and we didn't build anything during the Great Recession because we did have a large overhang of homes. Um, And, of course, many of those homes weren't near jobs, which is where many people did turn out they wanted to live. Mm -hmm. The construction industry was just decimated. So then the economy recovered, and we weren't ready for it. We had no capacity to build housing 
for what was needed. On top of that, we then had the millennial generation moving out of their homes. They are now the largest generation in America. They are bigger than the baby boomers. So mm-hmm. they are looking for their first apartment, their first home at precisely the time that we are at the bottom of the barrel in terms of housing capacity. Yeah, right. And then on top of that, I should say, little aspects of this problem, particularly in places like the Bay Area, had been quietly building for decades, right? But, you know, as you say, it wasn't like that bad. And so it went from this kind of like low throbbing pain that we saw develop over many decades mm-hmm. to then just combination, great recession, millennials, lots of growth. And of course, certainly it is exacerbated by uh, many external factors beyond just housing, like the uh, uh, income gap shrinking in the middle class, the explosion of student loan debt has been cited. All of those things come into play as well. Yes. Oh, no. I mean, obviously. I mean, the fact that people have so many other stresses in their life medical, as you say, medical care, student debt, all these things is absolutely exacerbating it. And another thing, and this is a place where I'd love to see the Midwest again show leadership, uh, housing has very low productivity. Um, We do not build houses appreciably differently today than we did 40, 50 years ago. I I think that we're going to probably have to start thinking about how we build housing differently rather than how we open up new land. And you go from the cause to the effect of all of this. I mean, you you examine uh, the many causes, the many uh, external factors that contribute to this. The the effect is if fewer people can afford to buy, then they have to rent, which is leading to a resurgence of the tenants' rights battles of the 60s and 70s and the ultimate crisis uh, when both buying and renting become too far out of reach is homelessness and certainly we are seeing that in communities all across the country where that is becoming uh, a a growing crisis as well and uh, then it creeps back into politics which we are seeing in this year's presidential election yes i mean no matter who you are this problem has affected i mean even really rich people Though they may not experience the problem, they're sort of like aware of it and can't buy as much house for how rich they think they are. Mm -hmm. So that's why you are seeing this hit every level of politics. We are used to thinking of housing as being largely a local issue. And now we're seeing it expand beyond that to all sorts of states, California notably, um, are talking about how they need to adjust their state policies for housing. And then... The Trump administration just released a report from the Council of Economic Advisors saying that the affordable housing crisis is a huge threat to the pace of economic growth in this country. Uh, And then, you know, on the other side of the aisle at the Democratic debates, every major candidate on those stages has put out a pretty big comprehensive housing plan, which is something that's never happened before. And in it, they all have some aspect of the plan that says we need to make it easier to build housing and to build more housing uh, in more dense housing. And so what I, what I find optimistic about that is that this is a place where there is vast agreement. It's not to say everyone agrees on everything. There are still huge disagreements about social programs and how to, the best mm-hmm. ways to address homelessness and all that. But the first step we make towards solving a problem is agreeing on what the problem even is. Which the same can't be said for climate change, for example. There's, you know, we're still arguing about 
whether that's really happening or to what extent humans are uh, causing it and all of it, it does seem like at least the as you were saying, we can agree that this is a problem and it is a growing crisis, not just in the Bay Area, but everywhere. But this is a really fascinating examination of what the ultimate crisis looks like if we don't address it sooner rather than later. Again, it is uh, Golden Gates fighting for housing in America. Uh, Connor Doherty is the uh, author. And you have a website in conjunction with the book we can guide folks to? Yes, please. So it's ConnorDoherty.com. My name is spelled with one N, so it's C-O-N-O-R-D-O-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y.com. And we have that link up at our webpage, GoodMornings.net. Our throwback Thursday this morning from February of last year, The Housing Crisis and a Reckoning for the American Dream. Connor Doherty, the author of Golden Gates. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. This update of the odd and unusual, the lighter side of the news, brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. Here is a sign to check the pockets of anything you plan to donate. Employees at a Goodwill in Fort Worth, Texas, say a man came into the location uh, in early February frantically reporting that his wife had mistakenly donated an old jacket that he absolutely had to have back. Uh, It's not that he was real sentimental about the jacket itself. It's that in the pocket of the jacket, he had an envelope containing $5,000 in cash. Uh, Store manager Rhonda Davis says she told him that they get about 50 to 200 donations per day, so they needed to go and sort out bag by bag to see if they could find it. Said workers searched through the donations for several days with no success. Finally, uh, an employee found the envelope three weeks later. Three weeks later. And that fortunately it had not gone out on the shelf uh, yet or in the, you know, on the rack yet. And the uh, cash was returned to the customer. The employee that found the cash was given a bonus and the Goodwill Medal of Integrity. <laughs> the Goodwill Medal of Integrity, which would seem to suggest that this happens more frequently than you might think. <laughs> that they have an award for someone who can recover something valuable that has been donated by mistake. $5,000. Wow. Mm. <laughs> Also in the uh, broken news this morning, this uh, from Australia, the land down under, where Jackson Perry and Noah Palmer, two friends, had to be rescued after uh, uh, apparently uh, they had been dragged out two miles to sea off the coast of of Perth, uh, had to be rescued. They saw the uh, funny side, said they would simply check the wind forecast the next time that they went out on the water. The uh, two pals hopped on an inflatable mattress on Saturday, along with a cooler full of beer (laughs) outside of Mr. Palmer's Oceanside home south of Perth. They were planning on staying close to land, but strong winds dragged them two miles out into the ocean where they were stranded for almost three hours until they could be rescued. (laughs) You've got an inflatable mattress, a case of beer, and the ocean. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) 
Next time, I'll check the wind forecast before. How about just no, no next time? That's I'm sure that's what their wives are saying. How about there just not be a next time? <laughs> Enjoy your beer on solid ground at next time. A mystery is brewing in Argentina. Uh, talking, talking about beer uh, and the water. Uh, you've heard of doing a beer run. How about an underwater beer run? Uh, thieves uh, dove to a shipwreck uh, off the coast of Argentina to steal 150 gallons of beer. The uh, barrels were locked in cages left there to age um, with a, a shipwreck years and years ago. So apparently there's this legend that this beer went down to the ship. Sloan's, uh, I'm sorry, uh, students from a diving school had planned to haul it up and sell what would have been 2,000 bottles worth of beer. But when they went down to get it, they found the barrels were missing. Somebody had beat them to it, apparently. Money from the beer sales was expected to benefit a nearby science museum, but that won't happen. Now the, there's a mystery of what happened to the beer. Somebody with an underwater beer run. <laughs> Interesting. 18-year-old from Kansas is uh, cashing on, cashing in on beginner's luck. Sloan Stanley tells the Kansas Lottery, officials of the Kansas Lottery, that just days after her 18th birthday, she decided to play the lottery for the first time. She picked up a $5 cash cow scratch-off game because she likes cows and thought the ticket was cute. It ended up netting her $25,000. Very first time that she played the lottery, and she hit for twenty-five grand. i am not sure whether to be happy for her or just incredibly jealous. <laughs> this is, again, this is another one of those, I don't even know Sloane Stanley from Kansas, and I hate her already. She's played the lottery exactly once and hit for five, uh, 25 grand. She said she plans to use it toward her college education. Well, good for her. And finally, in the uh, broken news this morning, generally we have a rule uh, about uh, certain things we just don't include in the broken news. Uh, stories where someone dies because it's just not funny when somebody loses a life and uh, stories about uh, serial killers. Those are generally not humorous. However, we'll make an exception in this case for a case of poetic justice. It appears that the I-5 Strangler, California's notorious I-5 Strangler, has died by strangulation. The coroner's report is in, and uh, 80, the uh, 81-year-old uh, man, uh, Roger Kibbe, who is convicted of uh, killing multiple uh, multiple uh, women over the course of two decades, he uh, earned the name the I-5 Strangler, was declared dead, dead in his cell at Mule Creek State Prison just outside of Sacramento. Officials say his cellmate, Jason Boudreaux, strangled him to death. So there's a sense of poetic justice there, you know? I'm not going to shed a tear over that. Uh, anyway, there you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. This uh, update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, 
of Hancock County Veteran Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. What do basketball, choir, drama club, and marching band all have in common? They're all high school activities that offer learning opportunities not necessarily found in the classroom. They take up just a fraction of a typical Ohio high school's budget, and they go a long way to giving young people the tools they need to thrive. They're more than extracurricular. They're extra important, too. This message presented by the Ohio High School Athletic Association and the Ohio Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. Along with WFIN and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives, all the isolating that we have been doing over the past year because of the pandemic appears to have affected our ability to communicate with each other. This according to results of a new one-poll survey, 62% of those surveyed say the pandemic has damaged the art of conversation. 62%, three-quarters put some of the blame on masks, saying that it's hard to understand what people are saying with a mask on. And it's also been pointed out that it is tough to read someone's facial expressions, which is such a big part of communicating when people's faces are covered. So three quarters say that that has negatively impacted our ability to communicate with each other. 57% said that it's significantly harder to have a substantial conversation over the phone or via video chat as compared to -to face-to-face. Over 70% said they are most looking forward to speaking with family and friends in person once the pandemic is over. That's the thing they're looking most forward with. The uh, survey was done in celebration of World Hearing Day, also asked about the sounds that people miss during the pandemic. And this was kind of interesting. The answers included hearing live music, 38% uh, really miss that. 35% want to hear surround sound at the movies. When I go to a movie theater... To just have the full experience. It's just not the same streaming the movies at home. 28% say they miss live chants at sporting events. The sound of the crowd at a sporting event. And 24% uh, 24 miss the sound of their kids and their grandkids playing. I, I think we can all relate to that. And now to our Keeping the Faith series this morning. The Christian season of Lent culminates in Holy Week, of course, commemorating Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, followed by his betrayal, the crucifixion, and the ultimate resurrection of Christ. It is what separates Christians from the followers of other faiths, that the Son of God dies for our sins and is raised again to be with the Father in heaven. But it is also symbolic of the trials that we all go through in our faith. The teachings of Jesus have been challenged through the ages. Even today, there are those who disbelieve and would confront Christians over their beliefs. Is it possible to turn those doubters into believers? Correspondent John Clemens reports this morning, Keeping the Faith. Mark Clark is the founding pastor of Village Church that has multi-sites and cities across Canada. He's trying to reach skeptics that want to challenge believers. His latest book is The Problem of Jesus. I met Jesus through the Bible. 
and just reading the gospels and being confronted in my life and realizing I want to follow this person. And so uh, it had this profound, you know, experience of the Holy Spirit that changed not only what I did with my life, but what I wanted to do, the things I took pleasure in, the things I took joy in. Clark's journey to a faith in Christ began as a skeptic. So I've always come to the question of the Bible or Jesus or miracles, you know, the stuff I explore in this book, discipleship, and said, okay, how, how should I actually trust this? Like not growing up in the church, I'm not just going to accept this as fact. I want to actually explore it. Pastor Clark tells us it was that journey that changed his life forever. So I started exploring Jesus, you know, and realized that Christianity was this unbelievable idea in the marketplace of ideas based in history, but also super inspiring. And, and not only could it like affect, you know, how I thought, but how I lived and how I felt, you know, all of that. So it comes out of a place of presenting that to the world. The problem of Jesus is like a roadmap of Pastor Clark's journey that invites the reader to follow when confronted by skeptics. Then I meet people who are skeptical of Christianity and they say, oh, the Bible, you know, the Gospels are just made up stories and legends and whatever. And I, so I go into that and I, wait a minute, is that true? And I go into some of the historical data and talk about how people trust the writings of the Gospels, the resurrection, his claims to be God, you know, all of these things. And the reason I kind of, you know, compiled all that is because the regular Joe Christian probably doesn't have time to be sifting through you know, some of those history books to realize, oh, there's actually a great historical argument for Christianity. Pastor Clark wants the reader of the problem of Jesus to understand the teachings, claims, and the actions of Christ, who has forever altered the course of human history. If more people understood that, they would be filling the pews of every church. They're looking at the church and they're looking at Christians rather than getting back to look at Jesus. Who was he? What was he actually about? What were his parables about? What were his miracles about? Did he really rise from the dead? Did he claim to be God? What does discipleship look like? All of these massive questions and making sure people are actually seeing the real Jesus versus, you know, bad versions of him that are being presented by kind of modern Christianity at certain times. So it's a book that really presents that to both the skeptic and the believer, really. It's the same formula Pastor Clark has used at Village Church that he believes has been the reason God has blessed their labors, leading to their growth over the last decade. You know, the 16 of us that started the church in 2010 were sitting in my room and we were dreaming up, how do we reach people for Jesus in a post-Christian culture? And then we got in this little elementary school gym with 50 people and I just started preaching and telling everybody that they weren't the hero of their own life and that Jesus was and that uh, they're a disaster, but that's okay because Jesus isn't. Pastor Clark believes a church can grow even in a society of what many believe is a post-Christian culture. It took me three and a half years to preach through the Gospel of Matthew. I would just preach, you know, one verse, or verse by verse by verse every Sunday. And everybody said, well, you know, you can't grow a church that way. Well, we grew by, you know, 900 people in those few years. So you can grow a church, even in the post-Christian culture, by preaching the Bible and by focusing on Jesus and calling people to repent of sin and give their life to Jesus. In fact, it's the only way. Here's how listeners can get in touch with Pastor Mark Clark, author of his latest book, The Problem of Jesus. Yeah, uh, go to theproblemofjesus.com and you can read what the people are saying about it. You can read what it's about. Personally, yeah, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and all those places. So I'd love to have your listeners join in that journey. 
This is John Clemens reporting. And that is our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show, of course, at our webpage, goodmornings.net. Check us out there. Connect with us on our social media channels. Uh, sign up for our daily email newsletter and more. Again, goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow, America remains a nation divided, which is why a new initiative is aiming to bring people together for real, meaningful conversations with one another, despite our differences. Are we ready to listen to each other again? So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.